Good morning, Plum Creek. I want to welcome everybody here today, and I hope you've had a good week. I also hope you're ready to jump into week two of our Galatians series. And you may want to buckle up this morning because we're about to dig into the second chapter of Paul's letter to the Galatians. And this chapter tells the story of an epic showdown. It's a major clash between two titans of the early church. On one side, you've got the apostle Peter. And Peter was a major leader in the church of Jerusalem, and he was also one of the original 12 disciples of Jesus. On the other side, you have the apostle Paul. And today, Paul is known as maybe the most influential missionary in early Christianity, but compared to Peter, he was a relative newcomer. He never got to walk with Jesus like Peter did. But this morning, we're going to see Peter and Paul face off in a conflict that is fascinating, a little shocking, and very helpful. And there's a lot we can learn from this story, and we have a lot of ground to cover, so let's get to it. First, we need to do a quick review of what we covered last week. You may remember that Galatians was a personal letter written by Paul to a group of churches in a region called Galatia. And Galatia is part of the land that we call Turkey today. Now, Paul was instrumental in starting these Galatian churches, but he wrote this letter because some of the people in these churches had gotten off track. They had drifted away from the gospel of Jesus. And by the way, we need to remind ourselves that we all have a tendency to drift away from the truth, right? All of us are like a car that's out of alignment, pulling this direction or that direction. And anyone who follows Jesus has to go back to Scripture again and again to get the course correction that we need. We need that correction because some of us may pull to the left. We may have a tendency to tolerate or accept what God says is wrong. Then some of us are more likely to pull to the right. We're prone to be stricter than God is. But then many of us drift both directions. Sometimes it's to the left, sometimes it's to the right. It depends on the day. It depends on the situation. So Scripture takes us back to, to true center, to, to the pure message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what is that gospel exactly? Well, we said that the word gospel means good news, but in the Bible, this word specifically refers to the good news about Jesus. And what is that good news? The truth is, it's hard to boil it down into just a few words, but here's the description we used last week. The gospel is the good news that Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, died in our place so that we could be saved by God's grace through faith in Christ, instead of trying to be saved by our own works, which is hopeless. Now, in my life group last week, we read over that description, and I kept wanting to stop every few words and go into more detail, because there's so much to say about grace or faith or even the idea of being saved. But we're going to dig into some of those concepts today, so for the moment, we'll just move on. The main thing to keep in mind is that the Galatian Christians had drifted from the true gospel. And do you remember which direction they drifted? Was it to the left or to the right? You remember? To the right, yeah. They had veered off straight into legalism. 
Now, they had no problem embracing Jesus as their Messiah and their Savior. Uh, They thought Jesus was great, but in their eyes, he just wasn't enough. And here's why. Uh, you, You may remember in the earliest days of Christianity, the church was almost entirely made up of Jewish Christians. These Jews had grown up under a system where you tried to please God by following the Old Testament law. In those days, the nation of Israel had a complicated set of rules that applied specifically to their people. There were lots of ceremonial laws, like the one about circumcision. Every Jewish baby boy was required to be circumcised. They also had laws about observing the Sabbath day every week. You weren't allowed to do any kind of work on that day. And there were lots and lots of dietary laws, which meant you couldn't eat things like shellfish or ham because those foods were unclean. And it is true that in the Old Testament days, the people of Israel were supposed to follow those rules to the best of their ability. But in the New Testament, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, God made it clear that those ceremonial laws did not apply to non-Jews or Gentiles who became followers of Jesus. But in the churches of Galatia, There was a group of influential Jews who said, hey, we cannot throw out these rules. This this is what God has always expected of us. So uh, if, if Gentiles want to join the church, that's fine. They just have to follow the Jewish customs like we've always done. So these Jewish Christians were turning to legalism. And do you see the danger in that? The gospel of Jesus says, no one is saved by trying to obey the works of the law because none of us are good enough. The only way to be saved is to, uh, to, to experience the grace of God through faith in Jesus. That's the only way to escape eternal death and eternal punishment. And that means if you try to earn your salvation by working really hard to follow a set of rules and you're hoping that one day God will look at you and say that you've passed the test, You are setting yourself up for failure. You're putting yourself in a lose-lose situation. Because when you get to the end of your life, you'll find that you have not earned acceptance from God because none of us can measure up to God's standard of goodness. So it's a losing scenario in the long run, but you also lose in the present. Because with legalism, you're always striving, and it's never enough. The truth is, it's a form of slavery. And so that's why Paul writes this letter to the Galatians. He wants them to know that the gospel is not about being a slave to legalism. That's why he says in chapter 5, verse 1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Paul really wants the Galatians and all of us to know that the true gospel brings freedom. When you begin a life-changing relationship with Jesus, you are literally being set free. It's like being released from, free, from prison. And, and you don't receive that freedom just to go right back into slavery. You remain free for the rest of your life on into eternity. But there is an important issue that we have to be clear about as we go through this series. What does Paul mean by that word freedom? Uh, what does it mean to be set free in Christ? Does it mean that we can live however we want to? Does it mean that we get to do whatever we feel like doing? Well, no, of course not. That's not what it means. 
But then what kind of freedom is this? How does it work? Well, Galatians chapter 2 is going to help us understand this. And one of the key statements in this chapter is towards the end, down in verse 20. That's where Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Paul said, hey, remember what happened to Jesus? Remember when Jesus was nailed to a cross and he died? Paul says, I went through a very similar process. The old version of me has been crucified. He's dead. He's gone. And the new me isn't really me. It's Jesus living through me. That's what Christian freedom is supposed to look like. To understand this freedom, we have to understand the concept of being crucified with Christ. We have to know what it means to let Jesus direct our lives so that we become more like him, not by our own effort, but by his power. And the more we experience that transformation, the more we find true freedom. And see, this is a common misconception about Christianity. Some people believe that Christianity is really about trying to be a better person. But the reality is, Jesus did not die so that we could all just become a little better. He died to make us completely new. So the gospel is not about self-help. It's about surrendering control to God and letting him do what only he can do. See, here's our bottom line for today. Legalism is trying to change ourselves from the outside in. Legalism is an exercise in behavior modification. And you know, a change of behavior does not necessarily mean a change of heart. If you want to get somebody to cheer for their least favorite basketball team in the entire world, you could probably do that. You could put a gun to their head and you can make them cheer for their least favorite team. But you know what? That doesn't mean you've changed their allegiance to their real team. And see, God's grace will not settle for just behavior modification. Grace is allowing God to change us from the inside out. It starts with a heart change that we could never accomplish on our own. And then gradually, over time, that heart change shows up in our attitudes and in our actions. There is a massive difference between these two systems. And as we'll see, if you choose legalism, you lose grace. So, what about that church conflict I told you about? How in the world did Paul and Peter end up in a big showdown? Well, you may remember that before Paul became a Christian, he was a prominent leader in the Jewish religion. In fact, he had been actively persecuting Christians. But in his new life, Paul began preaching the same faith that he used to fight against. And God gave Paul a very specific calling. God told Paul to take the message of Jesus beyond the Jewish world out to the Gentiles. And that's part of our story here. Paul's role in the church was very different than Peter's role. In Galatians 2 verse 7, Paul says, I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. So Peter's ministry was focused on people who were culturally Jewish or circumcised while Paul's ministry focused on the uncircumcised or the Gentile world. Now, Paul's wording in this verse may seem a little strange to us, 
But that's only because we're so far removed from the ancient Jewish world. Obviously, circumcision was very, very important to these people. And I know that I've made an assumption here that we all understand the word circumcision. Um, But on the off chance that someone doesn't know what we're talking about, just wait until after service and go find Jared Perkins. He'd be glad to explain it to you. Uh, Tell him Doug sent you. But the truth is, in the time leading up to Jesus, Jewish people drew a sharp line between themselves and Gentiles. God had set the Jews apart. They they were supposed to be different. And those special customs like circumcision were a way to define their separateness. It's how they identified themselves as being accepted by God. And they definitely saw Gentile pagan sinners as being outside of God's blessings. So Jews kept their distance from the rest of the world. They would not enter a Gentile home. They certainly wouldn't sit down to eat with a Gentile. But then once the church begins, these two cultures collide. Jews and Gentiles are brought together. And they now have this common connection of faith in Jesus as their Messiah. But it's no surprise that cultural differences would lead to conflict in the early church. So let's look at this conflict in Galatians chapter 2. And first, let's learn a little more about the major players. In one corner, you have Paul and the group of people who worked with him. In another corner, you have Peter and his crew. Now, Paul's base of operations was up north in a city called Antioch, while Peter's base of operations was down south in Jerusalem in the surrounding area of Judea. And we need to say something about Peter here. We know that God sent Paul as a missionary to the Gentiles, but God had also told Peter very clearly that the gospel was not for Jews only. Gentiles could also be saved through Jesus, and Peter knew that God wanted Gentiles to be welcomed into the church. Now, Paul understood that there could be some tension between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, so one day Paul traveled down to Jerusalem, and he met with Peter and some other Jewish leaders Paul wanted to make sure everyone was on the same page. And one of his companions on that trip to Jerusalem was a man named Titus. Titus was a Greek Christian. He had not been circumcised. And Paul wasn't quite sure how a guy like Titus would be received in the Jerusalem church. But on that visit, Peter and the other leaders said, Hey, Paul, we're cool. God has made it clear to us. The Gentiles don't need to follow Jewish ceremonial laws. There's no need for Titus to be circumcised. So far, so good, right? Well, yes. uh, For a while, things went really well. But then we read Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. In that verse, Paul says, When Cephas, which is another name for Peter, When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Okay, so what happened? Uh, Things had been good between Peter and Paul. What went wrong? Well, I'll tell you. Sometime after Paul's visit down south, Peter made a trip. He went up north to visit Antioch. Now, the church in Antioch was full of Gentile Christians, but we know that wouldn't be a problem for Peter, right? He already knew that the good news of Jesus applied to them as well. And for a short time, there was no problem. 
Peter was hanging out with the Gentiles. He was eating meals with them. He was treating them like real brothers and sisters. But all of a sudden, another group shows up. And I haven't mentioned this group yet. Antioch got a visit from the members of the circumcision party. That sounds like no party I want to attend. But really, the circumcision party was a group of strict Jews who said, no, these Gentile converts, they're not really a part of God's family unless they follow the entire Jewish law, including circumcision. So what does Peter do when this crazy group shows up? Does he call them out? Does he set them straight? Actually, no. Listen to this, verse 12. But when the circumcision party arrived, Peter began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles. Are you kidding me? Peter had been treating these people like family, but all of a sudden he starts excluding them and treating them like outsiders. Why in the world would he do that? Well, let's read the rest of the verse. Here's why. Because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Peter was afraid? This is Peter, the man who stood up in front of thousands of people on the day the church started, and he preached a fiery sermon that put his life in danger. This is Peter, a man who spoke boldly for Jesus in the face of serious opposition. He was thrown in jail because he would not stop preaching the gospel. Seriously, is this the kind of man who would give in to peer pressure? In a word, yes. Peter was like the rest of us. He could be strong at times, but he could also be weak at times. And one of his particular weaknesses was that Peter cared too much about the opinions of others. And if we're being completely honest, many of us share that same weakness. It feels good to be liked, doesn't it? And it feels horrible to be rejected or ostracized. Now, to some extent, it's just human nature to pay attention to what others think, and it's not always a bad thing to do. But every aspect of human nature has a dark side. And if my actions are based on others' opinions rather than my own convictions, I'm being a hypocrite. I'm sinning against God and against others. Look at the very next verse. Paul says, The other Jews joined Peter in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. That last part was especially painful to Paul. Barnabas had been a great friend and a great companion to Paul. When Paul first joined the church, people were suspicious of him. After all, he had been persecuting them. But Barnabas was one of the first ones to speak up for Paul. In this case, though, Barnabas followed Peter's example, and he caved in to the Jewish legalists. So what does Paul do here? Does he back down and defer to Peter, this influential leader who had spent so much time with Jesus? Well, if Paul was driven by the opinions of others, then yeah, he probably would have backed down. But Paul did not have the same weakness as Peter. He wasn't perfect by any means, and he was very open about that. But in this category, Paul was strong. Back in chapter 1, he said, Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. So no, absolutely not. Paul was not willing to back down. 
Peter and Barnabas and the others were allowing the circumcision party to corrupt the gospel itself. They were trading grace for legalism. And if Paul let that happen, the good news of Jesus could literally be lost. So here's what Paul does next. Verse 14. He says, When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, see that? They were out of alignment. When when I saw that, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Paul is publicly calling out Peter's hypocrisy. He said, Peter, I know how you've been living. You haven't been following the old rules. You've been living in freedom, but now all of a sudden you're going to take away those same freedoms from our Gentile brothers and sisters. And then Paul goes on to explain the stakes of what they're dealing with here. He says, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles, he's uh, kind of being sarcastic there, but he says, we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. See what Paul's doing there? He's saying, you guys are throwing the gospel, the good news, out the window. If we go back to the law system, we're setting ourselves up for failure because no one will be saved by trying to follow the law. There's no freedom in that. Freedom is only in the true gospel, the gospel of grace. So Paul made his point. Peter and the others were brought back into alignment. And with that, some of us may have heard what we needed to hear today. Maybe you needed that message that you don't have to carry the burden of trying to earn your way to God. You can accept the gift of God's grace. That's not the only message here. We just heard Paul's strong message about freedom, but there's another side to this. What about Peter's freedom? Why did Paul have the right to confront Peter? We have freedom in Christ, right? So if Paul was free to hang out with Gentile Christians, why wasn't Peter free to exclude Gentile Christians? Well, let's zero in on that phrase there in verse 16. A person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. We need to drill down on this. What does Christian freedom really look like? Well, this is where we need to talk about that word faith. A person is justified or made right with God through faith. But what is faith? Is it just believing in Jesus? Some people would say, yes, that's exactly what it is. But listen, let's let's use an imaginary example of a bank robber. I want you to get this picture of a bank robber in your head. And, And let's say this imaginary guy has been robbing at least one bank every week for a long time. But one day he hears about Jesus. And he decides that the Bible is true and that Jesus really is who he says he is. So he believes. But can we say the bank robber is now justified or made right with God through faith in Jesus? Well, before you answer that, there's more to the story. I need to tell you something else. After this bank robber decides that he believes in Jesus, he does not stop robbing banks. In fact, he has his calendar filled out for the rest of the year. He knows what bank he's going to hit every single week. 
So now that you know he has no intention of changing his behavior, would you say that this criminal has been saved by grace through faith in Jesus? I'm guessing a lot of us would say no. But why is the answer no? Is it because of the man's actions? If he had stopped robbing banks, would you change your answer to yes? And if you did change your answer, are you then saying that this man is actually saved because of his better behavior, because of his works? Because if that's what you're saying, it sounds a lot like legalism, doesn't it? Well, here's the thing about faith, as the gospel defines it. Authentic faith is not just belief. The book of James tells us that even demons believe in God, but that doesn't mean they have faith. So what's the difference? Well, authentic faith includes belief and trust. There's an illustration that I've used many, many times, but it's just such a powerful picture, so I'm probably going to use it many more times. But here it is. We can use this chair to think about the difference between faith and mere belief. Right now, I'm standing several feet away from the chair. And from here, I can say that I believe this chair is strong enough to hold me up if I sit down. I mean, looking at it, it looks pretty solid. The truth is, I do believe that the chair will hold me up. But here's the question. While I'm standing here, have I put my faith in the chair yet? No, not yet. What's the difference between faith and just belief? Well, you can see my faith when I sit down. Now I am trusting the chair. I'm trusting that it will hold me, and it's working out well so far. When I, when I sit down, I am demonstrating my faith. But let's bring this back to a spiritual context. What happens when someone puts their faith in Jesus? If that person says, sure, I believe in Jesus, but you see absolutely no evidence for their faith, you may have reason to question their authenticity, right? Paul says that we're justified by faith in Jesus, but that faith includes belief and trust. When you really put your trust in Jesus, you'll, you'll see visible evidence. Others will see it, just like when you saw me sit down in the chair. So here's an example. When someone begins a relationship with Jesus, the Bible tells us there are several actions that indicate an authentic faith. We're told to repent or turn away from our old lives and our old sins. We're told to confess or declare with our mouths that Jesus is now our Lord, our master, the one in charge of us. We're told to be baptized or immersed in Christ. That's when we're buried in water, signifying the death of that old life and the beginning of new life. Now, what if someone says, sure, I believe in Jesus, but I have no interest in repenting of my sins. I'm not interested in declaring that Jesus is my Lord and my master, and I'm not interested in being baptized. Well, at that point, does the person truly have faith in Jesus? Only God knows a person's heart, but I do know that when you have faith in a chair, you're happy to sit down on it. But let's go back to our bank robber for a second. What about him? He said he believes in Jesus, but does he have genuine faith? Well, if he does have faith, would he not turn away from his old life and abandon his evil plans? At the very least, would he not clear his calendar of all premeditated bank robberies? I do believe that he would. 
So what am I saying? Am I saying that this bank robber is not really justified by faith? Am I saying that he has to be saved by faith plus good works? Please don't misunderstand me. That's not what I'm saying at all. Remember, no one is justified by the works of the law. No one is saved by trying to be good enough. But here's the thing. If the bank robber has genuine faith, you will see evidence in his willingness to turn away from a life of crime. I'm not saying that he'll live a perfect life from that point on. Look at our story in Galatians chapter 2. Even Peter failed at living a perfect life. After he put his faith in Jesus, he still messed up. After he became a respected leader in the church, he still made bad decisions. In today's story, Peter messed up big time. But that's why God's grace is so amazing. Our salvation is not dependent on our everyday successes and failures. It's not your performance that maintains your salvation. It's still God's grace. But we have to come back to Scripture again and again because we can so easily drift away from the true gospel. We need that constant course correction. So how do we wrap this up? Well, here's what Paul says at the end of Galatians 2. He says, For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. Paul says, I died to the law. Let's make sure we understand that. We know that Christians today don't have to follow Jewish ceremonial laws, but what about the Ten Commandments? Is Paul throwing those out too? Is he saying that freedom in Christ means we don't have to pay attention to any of God's laws? Of course not. He's saying that we can't earn our salvation by trying to obey the law. Remember, legalism is trying to change ourselves from the outside in. But grace is allowing God to change us from the inside out. So it goes back to what we read earlier, Galatians 2.20. That's where Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So what happens when I die to myself and the Spirit of Christ is living in me and through me? Well, you're going to see some changes, right? You're going to see me becoming a different person. But that change won't happen through behavior modification. It'll happen from the inside out, not by my power, but by the power of God's Holy Spirit. You see, the gospel does make a set of demands on our lives. The gospel demands sanctification, which is the process of being made holy or becoming more like Jesus. But one last thing. If I have died to myself, couldn't you say that I'm just becoming a slave to Jesus? Like if if I'm doing whatever he wants me to do, I'm, I'm his slave. And can we really call that freedom? Are we just trading one form of slavery for another? Here's the shocking reality. We are becoming slaves to Jesus. But ironically, that's the only path to freedom. Jesus told us that. He said, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life, surrenders everything, gives up control, whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Yes, it's counterintuitive. Yes, it's easy to get confused. But this is the truth, and it's a beautiful thing. 
Freedom comes when we die to ourselves and let Christ live through us. Let's pray. Father, I just want to praise you right now because you are so far above and beyond us. And when we try to manage our lives and come up with solutions for our biggest problems, we come up short because we don't have the wisdom you have. We never would have come up with this idea of grace with, with the gospel. And that's why we have a tendency to get off track because this whole idea is beyond us. It's from you. But Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for Jesus. Because that's where our hope lies. Lord, I, uh, I pray that uh, you will help us to not only understand the gospel and preach it and teach it, but that you'll also enable us to live it out so that others can find this freedom as well. And if there's someone here today, Lord, that needs to be set free, I pray that you will just speak to them and they will respond. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.